Right now, across Australia, there are 46,000 children and young people in government care who can't live safely at home. While some live in kinship or foster care, 4,000 of these kids aren't currently in home-based care. At Adopt Change, our goal is simple, to ensure a home for every child and healing for those who have experienced trauma. We plan to do this with the support of our community and listeners such as yourself, who share our vision for a world where all children can grow, learn, play and thrive in safe, nurturing and stable homes, schools and communities, and who share our belief that families need to be supported. (laughs) I'm Michelle Stackpole, and you're listening to the podcast, A Home and Healing for Every Child where we host conversations with global thought leaders, experts, and individuals with lived experience on topics including foster and kinship care, adoption, child welfare, trauma, and healing. In today's episode, Adopt Change CEO Renee Carter speaks with Bruce D. Perry, MD, PhD. Dr. Perry is a superstar. He is an active teacher, clinician, and researcher in children's mental health and neurosciences, holding a variety of academic positions. His work on the impact of abuse, neglect, and trauma on the developing brain has impacted clinical practice, programs, and policy across the world. He is also co-author of the best-selling book, What Happened to You? Conversations on Trauma, Resilience, and Healing with Oprah Winfrey. Now that's a name drop. And he's principal of the Neurosequential Network. This conversation was recorded as part of the Adopt Change National Permanency Conference 2022, supporting children at home and school to thrive. Bruce, welcome. So good to have you here. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. We have invited you to really look at a very important topic, which is that children spend so much time at school. And often children with a trauma background are actually excluded due to their behaviours. And it's something that's very, uh, I guess, not understood in full. And that's why we've asked you to come here today and have a a chat with us about what's actually going on behind those behaviours and and what could be done to have a supportive and inclusive school um, system that sees our kids make it through school. Well, I I think... I don't think you could have picked a better topic um, for families that are living with and struggling with children following trauma, neglect, chaos, the kinds of things that these kids experience. In large part, because what we've learned over the years is that we might form a really good therapeutic relationship with the family and with the child. and, and, And there's some understanding about what seems to be the issue, what helps, how to de-escalate, how to understand, how to give people a little bit of space. And you feel like you understand the child pretty well and things start to go well. And then of course they go to school and the people in that world have a completely different understanding of the episodes of inattention or the immature behavior or whatever it is that the, the child is manifesting that's related to their earlier neglect. And frequently, those behaviors are so misunderstood that they get mislabeled and and the interventions actually exacerbate the problem. So these kids are marginalized, they're excluded, they're put into punitive behavioral programs where 
they are you know blamed and shamed and everything gets worse so about oh gosh it must have been about 25 years ago when we started initially doing these these developmentally informed assessments working with families uh doing making some progress and we we found that there would be progress in the summer and then at, in the u.s in the there's a uh, a break from school in the summer and then many kids would have a deterioration in their progress when they would go to school because you know who who wants to go somewhere where they're misunderstood uh they have a hard time making connections with their peers who kind of misunderstand why they're acting the way they are um, it just becomes a really negative experience so it was pretty early in in our working group's history that we realized that if we didn't engage the school and if we didn't help educators understand these issues, all of our other good work was just going to be very inefficient. So we developed a, a parallel process for teaching and supporting educational environments in some of the concepts about trauma, state-dependent functioning, how the brain works, how stress impacts learning, and so forth. And in the last 10 years, that part of our work has actually become the biggest part of what we're doing right now. And in part because you can have a very light touch. And what I mean by that is you can, you can give educators who are, by and large, very highly motivated if you teach them a little bit about what's going on, they're like, oh, my gosh, that makes complete sense. Let's do this. And you connect them to other educators who have worked with us, and, they, and they're very creative. And they are able to, to make suggestions and give concrete examples of how to create an environment in the school where the child feels like they belong, where they feel seen and understood. There's fewer conflicts, and there's more opportunity for healthy growth not just academic growth, but kind of social growth mm. and behavioral growth. And, you know, we've had, you know, we, some, not all schools, but a lot of the schools we worked with, we've seen almost hard to believe outcomes. Schools where there were uh, children who were in the fifth percentile in terms of academic accomplishment and were having literally hundreds of referrals to the behavioral program, the principal or whatever that was in that school. And in a year, these kids would be in the 45th percentile. They kind of back towards the norm academically. And they would be literally down almost to no referrals for behavioral problems. And the entire climate of the classroom changes, the attitude of the teacher to the child changes, the, the attitude about the child towards learning changes. And it, it just, it's very heartening to see that, that kind of positive progress. So we, we know it can happen, mm. but we also know that the number of schools that are getting this kind of support is, is probably way, way less than it should be. When you're looking at those situations, how, how much of it is a cultural understand, uh, change to understand actually what's going on for for the child that they're not a badly behaved child that there's something more behind that is is much of what you're talking about actually educating around that topic it, absolutely and, and the interesting thing is <clears throat> education and educators by and large are they're 
the way they get exposed to psychology and, and mental health issues tend to be very, what we call behavioristic. You know, they're very focused on points and levels and contingency programs to kind of get people to comply. And, you know, you give rewards if you do well. And, and if you don't do well, you have things taken away. Mm. And, and that approach to shaping behavior doesn't care that much about what's underneath the behavior. They're just trying to shape the behavior. And what happens is very predictably, because the, the kids we're talking about tend to be developmentally a little bit behind in some areas, tend to be a little bit more reactive, tend to have more attentional problems. They will respond to that kind of shaping of behavior by getting worse, more acting out, the need for more restraints, the need for more sort of extreme uh, interventions. And again, these are well-intended initiatives that would work on a child who is well-regulated, right? So if you have a, a child who knows how to make their bed and they're not reactive, you know, they don't have trauma-related reactivity about everything, and you say, listen, I want you to make your bed more often. Uh, so if you make your bed every day, I'll give you a star. And if you don't make your bed, I'm going to take the star away. And at the end of the week, if you have, you know, four stars, you get some reward. That shapes the behavior of most regulated kids. But if you're a dysregulated child and you have a history of trauma, that is just a landmine. You're literally creating a mess and the child will react in very negative ways. So what we've been trying to help educators appreciate is that what is rewarding for a, a child who regulates themselves normally is frequently not rewarding for somebody who's uh, struggled from trauma. And what is a consequence for a child who's pretty normally regulated isn't a consequence at all for these kids. In fact, some of the sometimes we hear this all the time. The teachers will say, it's almost as if he wanted to get sent to the principal. It's almost as if he wanted to get punished. And a lot of times these kids find it more comfortable when they're not continually being told that they're inadequate, they're not continually getting bullying glances from other kids. And so when they get extruded, there's part of it that kind of feels bad that I'm not one of the, but it also feels good that I'm not continually getting sort of emotionally buffeted by these interactions with other people. I mean, think about it. Everybody out there listening, you've had an instance where, you got feedback from a parent or from a boss or from a friend about they didn't like something you did or you did something poorly and you feel terrible about it, right? You like, you think you try to, you think back about it and you ruminate on it. And what did I do? And you try to get clarification. And that's just one little thing. Think about what happens to these kids. They get that every day. And they get it from multiple directions. They get it from their friends on the playground, or, or if they have a friend, they get it from other kids that are like, why are you so weird? And, you know, why do you talk that way? And it, all, all kinds of things where people don't understand that what these children are presenting is, is a normal, expectable, predictable set of issues if you've had developmental trauma. And... But because we don't understand that and because we haven't done a good job helping educators understand that, the, the schools exacerbate the problem and as opposed to being a place where these kids can heal. Mm. What, what's going on for children in schools that have got a 
trauma background where they're sitting in class and they're not engaging? What what are the types of things that are happening for them? Well, it <clears throat> excuse me, it can range. You know, the, the, a lot of these children have come from backgrounds where there is all kinds of uncontrollable and extreme stress or traumatic stress. And the adaptation that they choose to use is to shut down. They retreat into their inner world. And when they're in their inner world, they're, they're creating this safe place and they're kind of in a fantasy world. But they're not interacting with the external world very much. And so when, if, if a child has that history, that style of adaptation, and they go into a classroom, and the teacher starts putting something up on the board and immediately they don't know what, what in the hell you're talking about. That's stressful. And so they shut down. Now they'll sit there and, and one of the adaptations they've learned with this dissociative response is that if an adult comes over and interacts with you, you mimic back at them their nonverbal cues. You basically have learned that compliance makes them go away. You know, you nod, you, you give them what, you think they want, and then they'll leave you alone. So these kids kind of limp their way through school. They don't usually disrupt. They don't usually cause problems, but they don't engage others. They don't really process the, the, the what they're being taught very well, and they kind of just limp through school. And then there are other kids who are more have more of a fight or flight reaction. Mm -hmm. So when they feel overwhelmed, they literally will try to get up out of their chair and or they'll do something to distract the class or they'll disrupt in some way that's externalizing. And mm -hmm. then the teacher goes after them because you can't do that in my classroom and they get too close and they touch them and they'll blow up and there'll be a restraint and you get out of my class. And pretty soon that happens four times and then you're expelled and you can come back in two weeks, but in two weeks you're further behind. So the whole thing is just this catch 22. You're just, you are... I hate to say it, but if you're a child who has trauma symptoms like that and you go into a classroom where the educators don't understand this, you're screwed. Mm. You'll fall behind academically. You'll get labeled. You'll get over-medicated, at least in the U.S. Um, and you won't get any better because those medications aren't really targeting what the, the issues are. And so in the U.S. at least, and I know this also happens in Canada where we do a lot of work, there's a tremendous amount of mislabeling of these kids and uh, <clears throat> trying to solve these problems with medications, which mostly doesn't work. And then they try to solve these problems as they get older. You know, when they're young, they use kind of these points and levels and then you know, here's your, you, you get an aid and then you go to that room and you can't come into the classroom. And so they get this weird marginalized special education experience. And as they get older, be, when they do blow up or when they do flee and they're truant, we start to label that as a crime. And so these kids have a much higher probability of entering our juvenile justice system where there, there's even higher levels of misunderstanding. Again, the intention is we need to hold these kids responsible for their behavior. And we need to tell them that it's against the law to not go to school. And it's against the law to, like, if you, if you get into a, a, a fight with a teacher, we can charge you with assault. And that happens in the U.S. all the time. Kids get charged with assault. And it usually happens like this. 
they get dysregulated. They try to leave the classroom. The teacher says, you can't leave the classroom. The kid goes anyway. Teacher goes over and the teacher is the one who initiates the touch. They touch the child. They hold the child. They grab the child. Child is combative. And then that gets labeled an, uh, an assault. Now, if, you, if the very same thing happened and an adult male or an adult female came over to a, a youth and grabbed them on the street and tried to pull them somewhere, the person who would be charged with assault would be the adult, not the child. Mm -hmm. But in the schools, it's the child who gets charged with assault. And it really has led to this, this, this uh, sort of school to prison pipeline for kids that have developmental trauma. Now, I don't know if that happens in Australia, but it certainly happens a lot in the U.S. and Canada. Yes, there's there's definitely um, a high proportion of, of children that do have that crossover from the uh, government care system through to um, juvenile justice interactions, absolutely. There are children in Australia who can't live with their parents and worry about where they're going to sleep tonight and who will take care of them. While many of these 46,000 children now live in home-based kinship or foster care, there are still 4,000 homes for kids and teenagers urgently needed. Can you provide a home for one child? Our goal is simple. Help us find a home for every child. Inquire or donate today at a ahomeforeverychild.org. You, you also touched on earlier about how other children perceive kids with um, these trauma backgrounds as well. So it's obviously you, you've set the scene as to what that looks like for educators that may not understand what's going on, but it seems like there is some level of difference that's perceived by other kids. What, what's that about? Well, the, there's a couple of things that happen. And, and again, there are a lot of different ways in which children have been maltreated. You know, some of them, there's early developmental insults. Some kids have been the target of some sort of almost predatory behaviors. And so the result will be different outcomes. And there are kids that are more vulnerable and they're easily seen as a target. They're not doing as well in school. They don't have as many friends. They're not as connected in sports and drama and all this other stuff. And these kids become lightning rods for bullies. Mm. And unfortunately, a lot of the bullies have histories of trauma themselves. So they've learned how to be, how to target somebody who's vulnerable and how to be abusive verbally and how to be abusive physically because it's been modeled for them while they watched their dad beat the hell out of their mom or they watched some other form of intentional predatory abuse. And so the, the irony is frequently it's an abuser hurting another abused, it's an abused child hurting another abused child. And because we don't understand this in schools, Again, we come up with these well-intended but very ineffective interventions. Yeah. And um, again, we believe that the more you understand the range of issues that can occur with trauma and the better we are at identifying the specific needs and strengths of a child and then acting on that in a, a classroom environment or in a therapeutic environment, the better off you'll be. And so part of what we do, part of the model we have is that we're able to create a, we have a little bit of a, 
uh, a model that that helps the educator create reconstruct kind of a functional estimate of how each child's brain appears to be organized. And then you can use that to do treatment planning and for clustering kids into groups. And you go, this, this group of kids over here, they need some large motor regulatory activity. So let's incorporate that into what we're doing. This group over here is, uh, they're very relationally sensitive. We need to have a different kind of coaching, a different kind of challenge for them. And you could teach the same content, but in very different methods with those two groups of kids. What you can't do is put them together and mm -hmm. expect that you, if you teach one way, that they're all going to learn this, that they're all going to master the content. So, and they don't. And so, again, being an educator in, in this day and age is very hard, right? We're mm -hmm. asking them to do a lot. But the the core of learning about developmental trauma is actually learning about how the brain works. And a big part of that is how the brain learns. And so educators who learn this content, they become better teachers for everybody, yeah. not just the kids who have been maltreated. They become uh, much better at creating a climate in the classroom that they want to be in. Not just that the kids want to be there, but the teachers enjoy it. They like it. We see, for example, that in the schools that integrate this approach that we use, um, there's something like a 25% lower rate of utilizing sick days for basically to self-protection, right? Educators take sick days because they're burned out. They need, they need it. They also have turnover that's 20% less than people who... Uh, who ha have not learned about these things. So if you have a classroom with a kids in it, you don't understand them, they're acting out or they're not responsive. You try all the regular stuff you have been taught to, to do. It doesn't work. It, it becomes very frustrating. And I think that teachers, particularly in the last three or four years, are, are already right on the edge of burning out. So the more we ask them, to work with these kids without giving them this information, the more likely we are to burn them out. And, and it leads to this sort of, I hate to use the term, but it's, it's, it's called a death cycle that, you know, the, the capacity of the workforce is diminished. The needs of the kids in school are increased. And at some point you're going to get to this tipping point where the system just unravels. And mm -hmm. we've seen this in a number of schools in the U S so it sounds quite tailored in a way as well. We're not talking about just one um, one trauma-informed um, yeah. approach. It's, it's really dependent on, on different children's learning styles, et cetera. So with all the different things that teachers need to know and, um, you know, within the system, how, how would you recommend this working? Is it really dependent on principals implementing this within the school um, holistically? Can individual teachers access um, information if it's not available within their school? You know, what, what have you seen work? Yeah, we, we have examples of both. Obviously it's better if there's sort of or, organizational support. Mm. Um, but we one of the things that we've been trying to do, and we've done this successfully in a couple of universities, is we've backed this content that we've been teaching sort of at a postgraduate level we've backed it into graduate school and undergraduate school. So people that are graduating from several schools of education know this stuff. They're taught all about 
you know, attachment, trauma, stress, how the brain changes, neuroplasticity, all the principles of our neurosequential model. And then if now a lot of them end up going into a, in an, an environment where the administration doesn't know anything about that. But their classes start to do way better than uh, their peers. And so the, you know, the administrators are like, what are you, what are you doing in there? And, you know, they see them uh, moving around and they hear music and they see kids doing these pattern, repetitive, rhythmic things. And, and they're not, it's not curricular changes. These are relational changes and these are regulatory changes. So if you bring regulation into the classroom and you have a, an environment of respect and connectedness, then learning is easy. And, and of course, if that's what the environment, the climate in the classroom is like, kids that are struggling are going to be able to, to be better understood. They're going to be seen. They're going to be treated kindly. And they're going to be brought along in a way that just wouldn't happen if they're uh, marginalized. So that it can work. It's hard. You know, so that teacher has to be kind of this innovator, has to kind of have a sort of a thick skin, because other people are going to go, you know, I know that, you know, I've been teaching for 30 years and you just got to kick somebody like that out of your class. Um, so they're going to get a little grief. But it's worked best in our hands when the, there's administrative support and multiple teachers learn this together. And then they jointly create throughout the school um, a climate of respect and regulation and innovation. And I have to say the educators we work with are incredibly creative. I mean, when I, I see some of the amazing things they've done, it's um, it's very, very cool. We have class, we have uh, uh, schools, for example, where the eighth grade students are taught these concepts, the same concepts that we teach um, graduate educators. Wow. And then they take that content and they go and teach it in other classrooms. And they go into elementary schools and teach kids about regulation. Here's how your brain works. And this is what happens when you have stress. And it it's a really amazing, um, it's, it's an amazing thing to see. So again, th I'm very hopeful about the ability to get some of this content out into educational settings. But I, you know, I also realize that I, you just make a list of the number of schools in the U.S., we got a lot of schools. Yes. And and so we have a long way to go. Um, you, you mentioned just briefly before about some of the things that are happening in classes that are um, providing more regulation around, was it around music? And um, so are there, is there an example that you can think of that you could expand on around what that calmer yeah. classroom or more regulated classroom might look like? Sure, sure. So what, what we... One of the things we spend time teaching people about is is how you can regulate somebody, somebody who's uh, stirred up, anxious, inattentive, hypervigilant. How do you help that person be more regulated? And 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 how do you regulate a person who's sort of typically regulated, right? It, it, what you neurotypical? You don't. There's been no history of trauma. There's no genetic thing that makes you overly reactive. But we still need to be regulated. If you're like that, you still have moments when you're challenged, when you get overwhelmed, sleep deprived, hungry, frustrated, and so forth. So everybody needs a regulatory strategy. But for most of us, it's been this haphazard thing. We've just sort of discovered that when I have a really crappy day and I go running, I feel a lot better. Or 
um, I, I need to go into my room and if I read a little bit, then I feel a little bit better. Or on my drive home after work, uh, I kind of get regulated and calmed down by listening to music. So everybody has these preferences based upon a lot of factors, but you'll have a preference of how you do that. And so we help people figure out what is what is it that you know helps you regulate. And then let's think about how to dose that and space that out so that you're getting adequate regulatory doses throughout the school day. So we start a class with three minutes of somatosensory regulatory stuff. And it depends on the classroom and a lot of other things, but it might be something as simple as getting in class to do 90 seconds of deep breathing in and then out. It might be something as simple as let's do some stretches. It might be in another classroom, they'll have paired, you know, you know, pet, I don't know, you know what a patty cake kind of things where they do these rhythm activities together. But you do that for two to three minutes and then you start teaching because what happens is the transition is kind of busy and you run into people and this happens and that happens. And in order to get your cortex open for business to learn, you have to get regulated because the first thing that happens when you get stirred up is that the systems in your brain that control the stress response start to shut down your cortex. Mm -hmm. But if you're teaching, that's the part of the brain that you want to get to. So an educator's first job is to regulate somebody. The second job is to connect with them somehow, to, to relate, because that's the middle part of the brain. And if you open that up, it's like opening up a super highway into the cortex. Right. So once somebody's regulated and they feel connected to you, they feel seen, they, 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 they are connected to you, they value you, they want to please you. And then you start talking about something like rocks, which otherwise they think is, who cares about rocks? They go, oh, you know, Mr. Jones is talking about rocks. Rocks must be important. And they learn about rocks. Mm. And so if you adhere to what we call this sequence of engagement, regulate, relate, and then reason, you have much more success at getting content into the brains of these kids. Mm. And then, you know, everybody, you know, it's everybody sitting out of this conference. I can guarantee you that sitting and listening to even to the most compelling presentation after 15 minutes, you're like, Oh God, you know, and then you start to self-regulate by dissociating, you know, you're like, la, 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 la. but this is the same thing with kids. So what we need to do after about 12 minutes, 15 minutes of sort of cognitive acquisition of content, let's take a break. Three minutes of regulatory stuff. And it could be something like, you know, let's, let's do some tapping or some drumming or let's do some other thing. But that's what we do is we, depending upon the age group, depending upon the needs, depending upon what we do, we have these sensory regulatory breaks. And when we can, we yoke regulatory activities with cognitive content. And the easiest example is the way we teach kids the alphabet. We teach it in song, right? Mm -hmm. And I still, I still have to go when I'm looking something up, I, I don't know the alphabet unless it's in rhythm. And, and so if you can teach concepts in rhythm by using rhythm, either a song or poetry is very rhythmic. The human brain can learn and store information more effectively if there's an emotional vehicle, 
right? If, if there's a funny story, if there's a sad story, if there's a scary story, that stuff sticks. Mm. Or if there's rhythm, we learn in rhythm helps content get in and stay better. And this applies to all ages at school? Everybody, all yeah. ages. Yeah. yeah. Um, a couple of quick questions as we start to wrap up as well. Uh, with children and young people and what you're talking about in terms of what works for them, how much should children be asked, um, you know, sort of what's difficult for them, challenging or what works? Is it something that you integrate into the work that you're doing? Yeah, and I, we, we think that, again, one of the things that we talk about is how, how to move, how stress is something that builds resilience but it's also something that causes people to get ill and more dysregulated. But the, the difference is the pattern. So if stress has an, a, an element of control, if there's controllability and there's predictability and it's moderate, that makes you stronger. It makes builds resilience. So the only way that we're going to understand what a moderate dose of new content is or a moderate challenge in the classroom is, it, I, I can't tell, like, here I'm looking at you, you know, you look like you're pretty well together, but I still couldn't predict what would be a meaningful dose of, of new content for you. Mm. I might make a prediction, but I can guarantee you that most times when you go to presentations, people show too many slides. Mm. They're overestimating how much content you can absorb in a minute. And, and so we will self-regulate by tuning out. And so we are always better as teachers if the person we're trying to teach tells us what's, you know, slow down or this is moderate or that's too much. And that's going to be different for different kids, right? For the, a child with a history of trauma, they're going to want us to slow down earlier. Their, their doses of new content are going to have to be a little bit less. They're going to need a little bit longer to get back to their baseline, but they're going to learn the same stuff. It's just going to be a different pattern. And if you give them control of that process, they'll learn. And so to your question, absolutely. It, it, and if you don't involve the, the student in that process, you're frequently going to make your teaching activities much less efficient. Thank you. Um, Dr. Bruce Perry, it has been um, wonderful to have a chat with you. I feel like we could talk about this for hours. There is so we, much. There is so much. There is so much. So much work to to happen in this space in terms of changing the systems. Um, and ultimately, because as I'm sure you've seen, the difference in the outcomes for kids when they are supported. To exactly. I mean, it, and that's that's the hopeful thing. We know if we do some of these things, we can really help a lot of kids and a lot of families. And um, we just have to have the will to do it. And I, I'm, I'm optimistic that it, it is happening in some places. We have entire states that are making these changes. We have very large school districts that are making these changes. So I think it's happening. It, it just, you know, systems cha change far too slowly for many families, I think, but, yeah. but, they, but they can change. Wow, what a conversation. Some great advice from Bruce on how to bring a climate of respect and regulation and innovation into the classroom for kids who have trauma backgrounds. To find out more about Dr. Perry's work, 
head to the show notes for this episode. Thanks for listening to a Home and Healing for Every Child podcast. To find out more about our work, please visit our website at adoptchange.org.au. If you like this episode, head to our social media pages on Facebook and Instagram and let us know. I'm Michelle Stackpole. See you next time.